Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast roundup. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. It's a rock and roll book club edition this week. We're delighted to be joined by music journalist, author and recovering editor, Ted Kessler, whose book Paper Cuts, the inside story of the slow death of the British music press, but also a love letter to it, is out now. And continuing our theme, we welcome author Nige Tassel, who's the force behind Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids, a deep dive into the famous and infamous NME compilation tape, which identified the shamelessly guitar-driven, floppy-fringed musical movement that eventually became indie rock. We also listen to Fell From The Sun, Bob Stanley and Pete Wiggs' blissed-out compilation featuring the records that soundtrack the summer of 1990. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome back to the Culture Bunker, everyone. Let's say hello to our first guest. Ted Kessler is a music writer. He's the editor of music newsletter The New Q, and he's the former editor of Q magazine, The Old Q. <laughs> he's just published Paper Cuts, How I Destroyed the Music Press and Other Adventures. All right, Ted, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. It's delightful Excellent. to be back in a very small room with you. It's just like being on Q Magazine. It's like a, my favourite meeting's always with you, Andrew. Oh, I'm actually getting a fear now about what's going to be on a cover that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's book publication week. How, how are your nerves? Are you waiting for the midweeks? Are you running around bookshops putting yours on top of Jude Rogers' book? <laughs> no, but I'm going to do that after this. Actually, it's a really good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Um, no, do you know what? Nerves are fine now. It's fine. It's just beforehand. I think now it's out there. I can't do it anymore. It's done. It's yes, fine. You've done all you can. Yeah, I want to really get drunk. It's kind of <laughs> my main plan for the rest of the weekend. Fair enough. It's, uh, we're going to be talking about it in detail in a minute. It's a very much a no-holds-barred book. Most journalists who are writing, sort of collect, putting the collections of their Don't work together... <laughs> it is, it totally is. Most journalists censor it to keep an eye on the next job, but you have taken the devil-may-care <laughs> attitude right of sod it. Well, I don't think there's going to be too many jobs anyway, so I think <laughs> that's the kind of the subtext of the whole book anyway. I don't feel there's jobs, and I've, you know, I've, I've chosen my battles. I feel quite wisely. I, I know... I've, cho- I've told the truth. I could, that's the main thing about the book. I just didn't want to... There's no score settling. It's just what happened. It's just what happened. We're going to talk about it more in a minute. Meanwhile, who else do we have, Sean? Making his Culture Bunker debut, it's Nige Tassel, a writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Word, Sunday Times, The Independent GQ, and an enormous amount more. He's also the author of seven books on popular culture and sport, and his latest is Where Are They Now? of the Movers and Shakers of the C86 Brigade, when indie music was indie. Welcome, Nige. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm fine. Very good. Very good. And slightly cooler than we were early in the week. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it must be said it is a little bit better, isn't it? Uh, The mid-80s UK music scene is seeing a resurgence in interest, we feel, uh, with your book. Also, Sam Nee's A Scene In Between, obviously, is garnering more attention, especially with his Instagram account of floppy fringe people. What's the attraction? I think the protagonists are just of an age where, you know, they're, they're in their late 50s, early 60s. They've got, you know, nothing to lose mm. by telling their stories now. Um, and, I see and, a theme emerging. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and some of them are no longer with us. There's 95 musicians who who are on the tracks mm. on C86, and there's um, six or seven of them who are no longer with us. So getting in touch with them and persuading them, mm. the getting in touch was quite tricky, but the persuading them to take part... Most of them were only too willing. Um, and I think the audience for it at that sort of age as well, you know, mm. enough time has elapsed to see, you know, where indie came from. You know, we all know it to be a festival, main stage festival thing now, but we're talking upstairs rooms in pubs 
around sort of North London, really, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Hammersmith Clarendon comes to mind. Was there anyone who wouldn't talk? I mean, just absolutely point back, like, I just don't need to go there, or were very and, difficult to persuade. And concentrating on my current material. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm um, There were two or three, I won't name them, but mm. I was absolutely fine with them, because, you know... If scars are healed, <laughs> yeah. this is, I'm going the opposite way to Ted. I'm going to yeah. keep my counsel. And uh, um, <laughs> if scars had healed over those mm. 35 years since, it wasn't me to kind of scratch away at them. And if they yeah. didn't, that was fine. And the good thing about this, I've done sports books in the past mm. where you go in search of sports teams. Where do they go now? Yeah. So if you've got a cricket team, 12, squad of 12, no one's actually, you know, if, if six of them say, don't want to do it, you haven't got a book. Here, at least, you've got four or five members of each band. So if the singer doesn't, the bass player will, because he's never been interviewed before. No, no one was interested <laughs> back in the day, so he can finally sp- speak his mind. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the bass players are more interested in member of the band, aren't they? I find. <laughs> before we move on, listeners, a reminder, you can help the Culture Bunker and indeed the entire Bunker Extended Universe to keep prospering and creating more podcasts when you support us on Patreon. Sign up for as little as £2 a month. You'll get all of our shows early and without adverts and you'll be supporting truly independent broadcasting and our excellent crew of presenters <coughs> and audio <laughs> producers helping us to seek out new stories and feature new voices. So just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Ted Kessler's memoir of life on the raging main of rock journalism, <laughs> firstly on the enemy, and then a valiant doomed attempt to save Q magazine is entitled Paper Cuts, How I Destroyed the Music Press and Other Adventures. It is, I can say, it is a hell of a read. It's, I've enjoyed it so much, a real page turning. It's weird when like your mates write, write things and you can honestly say they're brilliant, <laughs> rather than just going, yes, it's great, I really liked it. It's absolutely full of amazing personalities. The entire 90s and 2000s <laughs> cast is there. Marky Smith, Radiohead, Weller, Orbital, Apex Twin. Well, I have to say, Ted, the title is a bit of an oversell because you didn't personally destroy the music press, did you? It was well on the way to destroying itself. <laughs> no, I, do you know what? The, the, the subtitle was just I, I was I was a holding pattern I put it there this is what it's going to be and then when I finished the book it's the one thing I didn't change even though in the back of my mind I did think it was a bit over egged yeah <laughs> uh, I didn't really destroy it on my own I, but I was witness to people destroying it on behalf and in my name sometimes yes and we know those people we do know those people yeah. so let's like have a long list of and now we turn to liars <laughs> yeah, golden clericals no I mean what, what made you want to write it because I mean you, you, it's, so the genesis is when you were working on Kevin Rowland's book wasn't it N- no I think, oh. well, well, I'll tell you what happened I was um, we packed up the queue office it was during lockdown just after the first lockdown it was the oh. sort of summer's day went into the queue office first time we'd been allowed to go in the queue office we just folded and we're packing things away. And I just thought, that's it. I'm never going to work again. I don't think, I, I don't think I'm going to work again as, a, as a, a salaried employee anyway. I know some good stories. I've been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> Maybe I could just put them all together and, um, and write it. And so I went home the next day and just started writing. And I thought, I'll just start. First of all, I thought, I'll write purely about the music press and purely about what happened in the music press and then I just there were so many backstory elements I thought oh no no just start again and just start from the very beginning of your life it's still worth buying I hope <laughs> and I just thought I'd tell the story of how a complete just a, just a flunky just uh, as myself had just somehow managed to find the one place I could actually be employed and prosper to a, some degree Part of it that I really enjoyed was the story of your your early life as a peripatetic young man, <laughs> ping-ponging around France and all over the place. Mm. I had no idea that you'd had such a 
such an unusual upbringing, shall we say, Ted. There's a picture of you on the front of the book for sporting a Travis Bickle mohawk. <laughs> this is you when you're in school in France, isn't it? Yeah, it's me when I was 15. My dad was a journalist. He's, well, he's too old to be a journalist now. He's 90, but he was a journalist. And he got a job in Paris when I was 11. And very reluctantly, we all had to go with him to France. So we lived, we moved from central London to sort of just the suburbs of Paris. And um, yeah, well, I kind of rebelled quite strongly against that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give the book away, but I got suspended from one school and then I went to the British School of Paris and I just found that that was just like an animal house, basically. <laughs> and um, we were constantly in trouble with the locals and with the school and um, hence my haircut. And I used to get beaten up quite a lot for my hair. Mm, um, did you ever consider changing your hair so you wouldn't get beaten up? <laughs> Not really, no, not till I moved back to London. I kept, so we kept, uh, there was, it, it just felt, I was felt like I was in a battle with French people. Mm. Even though I had quite a lot of French friends by this stage, but it just, I just, um, there was something antagonistic about me then. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps there still is, I don't know. Well, I mean, leaping forward through yeah. your sort of numerous working in record shops and, yeah. not to give it away, that ended in an interesting way. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> Sort of, you almost kind of accidentally start writing for an old magazine called Lime Lizard. Lime Lizard, which Thanks. listeners of a certain age may remember. <laughs> you come into the NME at a time when, like, music business largesse has never been quite so ridiculous. There are flights everywhere. I mean, certainly around that time, I don't think I slept in my own bed for a consecutive weekend in three years. What were your favourite bits of that kind of that, that sort of middle NME period when you are kind of living high on the hog? Well, you know, the fa- my favourite bit is just arriving in the enemy office for the first time. And, and feeling, I was talking about this with John Harris at night at the book launch. We both felt we were at home. And it was very odd that we'd never felt before at home anywhere. My favourite bit is just going out with, with Simon Williams and John Harris in the evenings and going to gigs and getting cabs and then being able to expense it and just mm. thinking, this is the life. Going to gigs. Those first for two free. For free. Mm. Any gig... You wanted, and then being paid to write about it sometimes, not always. It was just, the, it was the best. And those first two years of working in the enemy, I don't think I'll ever experience that that, that sort of mm. rush mm. of adrenaline and joy and just freedom to do and be who you are. It's fantastic. And just that you meet a load of people who are like-minded and also maybe slightly off kilter with the rest of the world, and, and you all fit in there. Um, that's the best bit I know there's lots of great things but you get to go and stay in nice hotels in LA and all that stuff but the best bit is definitely those first 18 months two years when you're just free to, to write about music you actually become the NME's rave correspondent yeah by default I mean yes. I quite liked dance music and but I wasn't I wasn't an expert but I was I quite liked it and no one else really, and it, no one else could really describe it properly and I was able to do that so yeah. I got away with it Were you surprised when you kind of learned that actually not only could you write but that this is actually going to be your life whether you like it or not? I was relieved because there was no, nothing else that I could do <laughs> now I really couldn't do anything at all I still can't so I'm, now, I'm, now I'm anxious as I was when I was 24 25 in the same sort of same sort of space. Tell us about your two trips to Cuba, one with Black Grape <laughs> and one with the Manic Street Preachers where you met Fidel Castro. <laughs> Very different um, experiences. Well, the first one with Black Grape in 90, late 94, we had to meet at Stansted so that we'd make sure Bez would get on the flight with us. It was me, Kevin Cummins and the, and the PR Anton Brooks. And we waited there for a while and uh, Bez was staying in the hotel in Stansted and he didn't arrive he didn't turn up he managed to miss the flight so we went to Cuba just the three of us hoping to meet Black Great one other member Kermit was in hospital in Manchester he'd got given himself septicemia and Sean Ryder had somehow given himself 
apparently food poisoning in Mexico. <laughs> so you know, air quotes there. Yeah. So we all we all arrived in uh, in Havana, and there was no band, and there was but there were thirty American journalists and an TV crew. Of which they turned up, and it was kind of it was a chaotic few days. But the next time I went there with the Mannix was kind of a state organised trip when they played for government officials and mm. stuff. And backstage, Fidel Castro just turned up. It was, and I was in the room. I've got a picture of me grinning like a complete <laughs> idiot, kind of a tubby-faced kid at the back of the room, like going, "There's Fidel Castro here," and there's. It's just uh, it was one of those moments. What was Fidel's interaction with uh, Western rock like then? The best bit was when he went when they just before they came on. Robin Turner, who you may know, was. Yeah. Um, DJing and it just coincidentally put on Regular John by Queens of the Stone Age, which is a very sort of motoric uh, song. And as he as it started, Castro walked in a slow walk along the top balcony, and the whole room rose. And Queens of the Stone Age still blasting out. And he stood there. There's like three minutes of applause to the whole of the song. And Robin turned down the music, and so we had Castro <laughs> sort of bow like wave into this this. Uh, this room full of people applauding him, and the Queen's the Stone Age blast in the background. It's one of those great moments. And then Castro shouts, "Have you got any suede?" Yeah, he yeah. left. He left for the end. Actually, he did walk out for him, but he did go twenty minutes. I can't remember where this came from, but somebody told me that he sort of talking to the band, and they said it's quite loud. And yeah. he said, "Is it louder than war?" Yeah, can it be loud? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Nicky, I said, you know, it might be a bit loud for you, and he went, "It can't be louder than war." Yeah. Mm. The book is essentially in three phases, isn't it? The beginning is your misspent youth in France. Yeah. The middle is the NME, and the end is the as the trash compactor walls start closing <laughs> in on music journalism and exactly. your valiant battle to find something you can to hold them apart. Uh, full disclosure: there's a walk-on appearance by me, yeah. and you're exceptionally kind to me, Ted. That's no, very well, nice. You were of kind you. to us because you saved us. We were in a ter- <laughs> at that moment. You were in a we were in an existential crisis, and Andrew Harrison turned up and started saying. Have you thought about making it readable, the magazine? And we were like, <laughs> wow, what a great idea. That's why they pay me the medium sized yeah. books. Everybody in this room, we're all kind of graduates of the music press, but do you think anything could have saved the music press? No. I mean, oh. like, I mean, the Guardian have, have sort I mean, there are newspapers that still exist, and they're, but they're changed over time. I suppose there could have been a version of the music press, and I guess Uncut and Mojo still exist. Oh. But I don't know, contemporary music covered in a magazine, there just wasn't very much of an audience for it. There's always been a kind of misconception that the music weeklies kind of had this ulterior motive of just people promoting their mates. And you're in the unusual position of it. Your brother is actually a, an actual musician. He's in the band Interpol. And you write a lot about stepping gingerly around this and not being accused of, you know, Nipsey's giving them coverage. In yeah. fact, in many respects, it's like Interpol very nearly suffered. The, if somebody had not had a connection with them, they might have been in queue a little bit more. Is, is that fair? Possibly, and I, I feel that they may have suffered from me not being at the... I don't know, I think the fact that I'd been at the NME and had left the NME, there was a little thing like, oh, Ted's brother, let's not cover Interpol. Mm. I felt that they weren't covered in the press quite as much because their brother was a music journalist and people kind of shied away a little bit from it, and I also deliberately shied away from covering them. But I think they haven't really suffered. I mean, they're fine. Yeah. I'm, I mean, they're absolutely... They're, they're, yeah, <laughs> no, they're, they're doing no, great. <laughs> I've had to borrow some money off my brother recently, so they're absolutely fine. <laughs> yes, the, the bank of brother, brother yeah. in a rock band. 
One of my favourite stories from around that time was that the, uh, one of the award ceremonies, they'd finally managed after years of trying to get Smokey Robinson as the guest. And this news was passed on to a senior member of the publishing team. This is great. Finally, we've got Smokey. And she said, oh, brilliant. I love living next door to Alice. <laughs> and that was kind oh of what gosh. we were dealing with. It was like, OK, never mind. I mean, you also write a lot in this about the what the music press and you know the enemy but also you know melody maker and you know select where sean and i were what it kind of gave to the culture how it kind of like developed not just writers who'd gone to work in newspapers but also developed the language and the mm. shared kind of humor yeah yeah where is that now has that all gone to twitter or has it all gone to i think it's mostly social media isn't there i think mm. that twitter's really covered that whole area massively uh, i don't i'm not on tiktok I imagine that must be covered on TikTok too. But I don't know if it feels like quite so much of a club as the music mm, press felt, because mm. it felt like you, that you understood a joke that perhaps yeah. only those people who read the magazine... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, Half Man, Half Biscuit, who we might be talking about a little bit later <laughs> in connection with Nigel's book, are entirely nourished by John Peel and the music press, you know, in okay. jokes about, you know, songs about being reviewed in the music press. It's like a whole culture has kind of winked out of existence. Yeah, and it's also the, all those personalities that probably... Say a Marky Smith, would that Marky would we know the world of Marky Smith, the, the, the world view of Marky Smith mm. nowadays? Maybe not. And there may be musicians who are operating there, 19, 20 year old kids, who would be elevated beyond their sales mm. yeah. via yeah. the music yeah. press. Mm. Your yeah. interaction with Marky Smith was a pretty entertaining one, wasn't it? Would you like to relate it for the listeners? Do you want that? Say <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, the first, I was very nervous. The first time I'd ever done a phoner, and um, I was at Lime Lizard, and they made me go in the office, and uh, I'm waiting in the office, sweating, really sweating, really nervous, and they go, we've got Mark for you. Can you hold the line? I went, OK, God. Oh! <laughs> Hello, is that Mark? Yeah, Kessler. <laughs> I saw the sign. Yeah? Kessler, Ted Kessler. And I went, yeah, yeah. Jew or Nazi? I was like, <laughs> that's a hell of an opener. I'd, ne- I'd never ever been asked that question before, and I was sorry. What? He went, Jew or Nazi? It's got to be one of the two, hasn't it? And I was like, well, you know what? In a weird way, it does. It does have to be. And he goes, well, what are you then? And I went, my dad, my dad was, a, my dad was a Jew. He's a Jew. Uh, and he went, seen any Nazis? <laughs> And I, and you know, I had to say yes. He had seen Nazis. They'd come into his apartment in, in Vienna when he was a small boy, and he went, well, "That's a good story, isn't it?" No one, but not many people can say that. And I was like, "Wow, this is how we've started." And, and that, and my, when I told my dad that story, he that became his joke over, over dinner parties in New York. He's like, "Guess what?" This singer in England said, asked of my son. He asked if he was a Jew or a Nazi. It's kind of hard to. You've got to really answer one because you can't really answer no. the other, can you? But it was because there'd be, there was a BBC drama called Kessler. Yes. About, uh, oh, you've all, you all know that, do you? Yes, about a yeah, about a SS officer. So he was the he was the Nazi. What was your single favourite moment of your time in the music press? Oh, blimey! Not from working with me. I would say, and I'm just saying this because we've just mentioned him, but I think finally getting to the pub with Marky Smith, have, that's what I started off wanting to do. When I read the music press, I wanted to go to the pub with Marky Smith, and I didn't manage to do it until 2016, shortly before he died. Hmm. I got to the pub with him, and we sat in the pub for seven hours or something, <laughs> during which we drank quite a lot, and he didn't go to the toilet once. Wow. Not one. And at the time, I was saying, how have you managed this? We were sort of standing up trying to leave, and I was swaying around. 
I said, how have you managed? He goes, oh, I saw this orange speed and just sort of wandered off. And I was thinking, you haven't taken orange speed. Obviously, he had some sort of bag in, but <laughs> he must have. He must have. And there's yeah. no other way. You can't drink six pints and all these whiskeys and not have a wee every now and then. It has to be the case. Well, things like this take place in Paper Cuts. Press and Other Adventures, which is out now, and it's a fantastic read. Every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs as their own bespoke recommendation to you, the listener. Nigel, what's yours and why do you love it? Mine is kind of related to the, the C86 book, actually, because it's, it's an alumnus of, of the tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Lance Callahan, who's the singer, is still the singer in The Wolfhounds because they, they were one of the bands who came back together. Last year he put out an album called English Primitive One, um, just the thing we recorded during lockdown. Him with his guitar largely... He describes it, and I think it's the closest description I can I, I can agree with. Is post-industrial folk. It's <laughs> he's got really weird tuning on his guitar. It's not quite West African. It's not quite sort of desert blues. It also sounds kind of English as well. But it's just amazing. And this song was in my head as I I interviewed David I, with with in the book. I try to interview people in the context of their lives now as much as possible. David went on to be a really noted ornithologist. Writes books on birds now. That's what he does for a living. So. I met him at 7am and we drove down to Rain and Marshes and we'd just walk in the Thames Wall back from the cafe having a nice, nice tea and a cake, obviously. And it just struck me this kind of ancient, modern sort of sound mm. because right in front we had the Thames just, the tide just going out, which it's done for millennia, millennia, millennia. And you turn around and you suddenly see the Eurostar on the far side of the marshes. And it's, it's kind of ancient and futuristic and, and it's all about the layers and history that you, you, you can just are revealed at low tide there. Um, and it's just the wonderful kind of haunted haunting song and it's called Goat Man let's have a listen then and it's also on the playlist remember you can find the link in our show notes From the Sun is the latest compilation from Music Swats, Bob Stanley and Pete Wiggs. Centred around Chill Out and the post-rave sounds of 1990, this features tracks from Primal Scream, we may be talking about them later as well, One Dove, Soul Family, Sensation, The Grid, St Etienne and more. Does this genre resonate today? And are all tracks, as claimed, 98 beats per minute? We're delighted that the people behind these tunes are so nice. We've got lots cleared to play for you. So here's The Grid with Flotation and Transglobal Underground with Templehead. everybody wherever they are.
Nigel, I'm going to start with you because you know you're stumped from your bog shed. But what of 1990 and blissed out beats? I really enjoyed this, not just because of the, the temperatures we've had, the record-breaking <laughs> temperatures that last week, mm. and it's really that gauzy, hazy sort of feel to a lot of tracks. Um, it's also a fantastic anaesthetic if you're doing your accounts this week <laughs> in, in ridiculous temperatures, which I was, and it, it seemed to take the edge off it. It was mm. just really, really good and actually, you know... The bleeding edge of rock and roll. Yeah, yes. you know, putting £5.69 postage in a spreadsheet is actually enhanced by, by, by some of these tunes. I've got a theory. I've got a theory here. I'm gonna. It's a theory that I. It's a half baked, and I only thought about it walking up the Holloway Road. Half baked. Get it? Half from the sun. Oh, half baked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That maybe musical movements need not a yin and yang, but need something to bring it back down to earth. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking punk, very full on, and everything. What followed was was pop, and just very bright, and and sort of the antidote yeah. to that. And whether. Having a, a, a movement of down tempo stuff, you know, which went into trip hop, etc. Mm-hmm. Whether that's an obvious and, and uh, something that comes off the back of rave and acid house mm. that people need that kind of opposite. My favourite tune on this one, one that I knew from years ago for being a, an ENTS officer at university, we mm. used to get sent compilation tapes by various things. So um, the history track with QT on there, that, yeah. that, that yeah. really stood out back in the day. And I was, that was lovely to kind of, I knew a different mix back in the day. So it's nice to hear something familiar, but a, but a different mm. take on it as well. Um, that was one of my favourites. Is this good at defining the era? Have they picked the right tunes? I think so. I don't think you can argue with Bob Stanley. You know, if anyone is going to get it absolutely on the nose, mm. you know, the walking, talking music encyclopedia that is Bob Stanley <laughs> is, is going to get it right. I was living in Minneapolis at the time, which wasn't known for its, its down-tempo dance grooves <laughs> at all. It was uh, at the time of Soul Asylum and, and who else, Babes in Toyland mm. and people like that. But to me, it, it, it transported me back in time, definitely. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know... And how does it sound in terms of some of these remixes are 32 years old? They all are. Um... It, does it still sound viable? Does it sound like it was made yesterday? I think you can date it. Right. However, if you came along in the interim and you didn't know your history, mm. you know, in the, in the way that, mm. you know, the 60s is revived every 20 years, it sounds perfectly, perfectly decent. There's nothing that's jarring in there, you know, and, and Bob is a man of, Bob and Peter, men of taste. Mm. They wouldn't have put anything too cheesy in it. And to me, it, it didn't feel like I was going in a time machine mm-hmm. necessarily. It, it did the job, and those accounts got filed on time. <laughs> did what we want. Ted, mm. um, this could be a massive 90s hippie trip here because a lot of music of the time was we like everybody, let's have a hug, that kind of stuff. Did it feel like that to you? My memory of 1990 mm-hmm. and this sort of music was I was working in Our Price Hounslow at the oh. time. That place was much more hip hop and sort of techno-based mm. music mm. zone. So there was quite a lot of music at the time that wasn't like this, but that was dance music. Mm. And I think you're right when you say that basically when you've been out all night and you're going home to someone's house, that's when you stop listening to Silver Bullet or whoever, whatever you're listening <laughs> to. That's when you put on the grid and your flotation. And that it was just, it's just basically the start of chill out in a way. It was mm. just, mm. the, And that's the sound that they were making then. I think it does sound a bit dated, myself, some of it. Although I do think this this... Soul Family Sensation song is still as good as it was then. It's yeah, absolutely incredible. Brilliant. Great melody. I don't even know if I should call you baby. Such a good may know that one, yeah. Mm. yeah. You will be unsurprised to learn I absolutely love the bones of this. This mm. is this is essentially this 
is basically one of my tapes from 1991 <laughs> that I would play relentlessly. The selection of tracks is incredible. There's a, a particular tune called Snappiness by BBG, oh, yeah. which is yep. just this beautiful piano thing. We heard uh, Templehead by Transglobal Underground, which for me will always be the soundtrack of being dragged around the fields of Glastonbury at 4am, while you can't tell whether it's that record or the Harry Krishna is just amazing. <laughs> Flotation, I, I think that qualifies as a bit of a classic, doesn't it? Mm. And it begins with, as did C86, it begins yeah. with Primal Screen, yeah. but it begins with <laughs> Higher Than The Sun, Higher Than The Orb Extended Mix, the prospect of being higher than the orb mm. also, also being rather frightening. But <laughs> no, it's just great. It's slow, low, big, break beats slow down yeah. until they become a kind of beautiful yeah, sonic 98 mulch. BPM. And I, I have to remark on the cover as well, which I think is a David Swindles picture mm. of a stupendously blissed out young woman in a straw hat with flowers in her head, just looking like she's having the best time anybody has ever had in human existence. <laughs> so I, rec- I recommend this record unreservedly, and particularly right now, because... Mm, like I said, yeah. this, this was this was me in 1991 rattling around summery London, and it's all come back. So I was strolling across Highbury Fields mm. this morning, listening mm. to this and going, "Why am I not 23 anymore?" <laughs> Damn, none of us are. Can we feel the influence of this? Was this a small glitch in time, or did this, as you're saying, pave the way for more trip hop? I think you can hear out. this in lots of records. I mean, yeah. Saint Etienne. Uh, surprising spirits here. I think they spit their on this with Speedwell, and there's yes. a lot of there's a lot of this in them because they're always alive to whatever is going yeah. on around them, aren't they? But I think you, I mean Nigel's right. It was the beginning of chill. Mm. It was the beginning mm. of the thing that uh, you know when music has a mind massager, not quite background, not quite foreground. That's in there definitely. I really liked it, but again, I kind of cherry picked a lot of tracks. Mm. It's mm. very much the stuff I listened to, and it was a bit. Like, Oh, it's the, oh, of course. I remember having this stuff on repeat. Mm. I must have really needed to sit down at some point. So it did really, really take me back. There's something I think that sounds quite naive about it, but maybe that's just my very old person's lens back on it. Is there was this, and I, that's what the St. Etienne thing was trying to do, was trying to kind of hold on to, we had this optimism once. Yeah. We just thought the world could be a better place because of music and because of this stuff. Yeah. And look what happened, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's something of that which I like, but also makes me feel quite sad. Well, this, this music is as far away from us in time as the late 1950s were mm. from it when it came out. Ouch. So, yeah, <laughs> it's like 30-year difference. 32-year difference. And so, obviously, it has acquired an awful lot of sepia mm. around it, an awful lot of the beautiful past. Time has slowed down. It doesn't sound old to me. You know young people, right? You know they really <laughs> like the 90s yep. now. And they look all 90s. Do you think young people will listen to this? It's saying, oh, look, time catch Well, I've been forcing it on the young people here and they seem to like it. Or they haven't said turn it off yet. Are you the boss there? Yeah, well, that's true. That is true. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, music cycles never stop, do they? And they're they're mostly banging to the 80s and bringing in records that sound to me like they were remixed by Shep Pettibone or film mixed Master Hammond. Yeah. That's what they seem to like. So, you know, logically, this is where we're going next, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Because it's the weekend and all of us would like to be sitting in a pleasant field somewhere or other watching the sunrise, we've got a couple more tracks from Fell From The Sun. Here are snippets of Critical Rhythm and It Could Not Happen, plus Mood Swings and Spiritual High, man. <laughs> Full tracks are on the playlist, but hey, why not just buy the album? and in a ragamuffin style Yes, I'm wicked and wild In a ragamuffin style Oh, girl, you're right Woman, you're right It's gonna happen without your love Girl, you're right Woman, you're right It's gonna happen without your love But from the first time 
now, if you're of a certain age, like me, and you're in the middle of the Music Press and John Peel show Venn diagram <laughs> in the mid-1980s, you will remember C86 in a reaction against the glossy, go-for-it, Thatcherite ethic of big rock and big pop. Bands went modest, shy mm-hmm. and lo-fi. Haircuts favoured the bowl. Guitars <laughs> favoured the jangle. Trousers favoured the corduroy and the incredibly skinny. It was the heyday of Stump, Bog Shed, Early Primal Scream, The Close Lobsters, The Shrubs, and, of course, Britain's greatest cultural achievement, Half Man, Half Biscuit. <laughs> yes. And it was all crystallised on a cassette compiled by Enemy called C86. Like a C90, do you see? <laughs> now, a mere 36 years later, Nige Tassel has set out to track down the veterans of the C86 wars and find out what they're up to now in Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids. Do they still shamble? <laughs> was indie pop kind to them? To get you in the mood... Here is one C86 veteran. It's not the track that appeared on the tape, but it's a very representative one and probably a better one. This is the Soup Dragons. Special thanks to Hi-Fi Sean for letting us have this tune. There is a full Soupies Early Years compilation coming out later. It's called Raw TV Products, so keep an eye on that. But this is the spectacular Hang 10. So, Nige, question Andrew. one. Why? Write the book. Why? Okay. I'm going to kind of demystify things. You know, I, I write sports books. I, in, I uh, alternate between sports book and popular culture books. Mm. A lot of attention on music books at the moment, which I think Ted's going to kind of maybe allude to later. I thought it's about time. My first book was a music book. I hadn't actually written one since. And I, I went through the CDs. I went through the vinyl, just trying to think, who hasn't had a book written about them? <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is what we do to come up with ideas. Yeah. So I went up in the loft in the end to look at the cassettes because they're not pride of place in the, in the living room, surprisingly enough. And I was just, I couldn't find any inspiration. But while I was there, I thought, oh, look, that's the 86 tape. Part of me thinking, I wonder if that's worth anything these days. <laughs> mm. But also, oh, let's have a look at that. Obviously, the last box that I found, and it was, you know, the last tape in the last box. Anyway, so brought it down, got nothing to play it on anyway in the house. So that, that was the pointless exercise. At the time, I'm thinking about a book. I had a dream that night. You know how Paul McCartney wrote yesterday, you know, <laughs> scrambled eggs, woke up the next morning. And I always, you know, pulled scorn on that. And I had this dream where I was off looking, looking out for the likes of Sean Dixon or, or Bogshed, whoever. Anyway, didn't think anything more of it, thought quite niche. Mentioned it in passing to my agent. He goes, yeah, I can sell that. Mm. Really? Yeah, just do as a proposal, did a proposal and sold it a matter of days, which astonished me. Um, and then it was a case of going out and finding these people. I, I'm, I'm in the fortune position where I can call Nigel Blackwell from half and half biscuit a pal, you know, and, and we started off as pen pals and, and mm. we're kind of kind of mates now. Never talk about music, just talk about cycling and football and various things. So I had him. I'd interviewed David Gedge from the wedding present before. David's normally up for everything. Yep, I'm on, I'm on board for that as well. So I had two. I had 20 other bands I had no connection with whatsoever. The whole idea could have gone absolutely tits up. Yeah. And the publisher says, can we have our money back, please? <laughs> um, if I were a policeman, I'd like to be a detective. So I kind of put the deer stalker on and just thought, right, let's go and track them down. And I spent many long nights at the kitchen table typing in people's names into Facebook. Into 
such quite stalker-esque mm. kind of patterns. But in the end, and it kind of mushroomed, because once someone was on board, oh, you've got so-and-so, oh, yeah, we'll be on it. Mm. And it mushroomed like that. And, and in the end, when, when I got the drummer of Meow, which was the 22nd <laughs> band, punch the air, and all that, that is it. Right, we, we do have a book here. Now let's get in the car and go and meet these people. I mean, the traditional business of interviewing musicians is trying to find a little bit of their time in their busy schedule while they're playing, you know, off to play the, uh, you know, Budapest in Olmo Dome. And if you've got two minutes on the phone... What's the experience like of talking to people who are very much on the other side of the experience? Very much up for it. Yeah. Very much, you know, as I mentioned before, they're kind of at the stage of life where a lot of water has passed under that bridge. Scars have healed and they're quite happy to look back. You know, quite a few bands have reformed to mention the Wolfhounds, but Mighty Mighty had. So they're doing a few gigs close to Lobsters. They kind of, you know, got back with their mates. Mighty Mighty is still the same five-piece they were originally mm. back in 1984, 85. And they were largely up for it. But it wasn't that I just want to hear their story of the time then. Yeah. It's also how life... What, you know. Well, it, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's like the beloved old feature in Q magazine, Where Are They Now?, it, which had to be retired because the answer increasingly became, they're still going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know if, if I did one, if, if this came out in the 1990s, they would all still be going. But as mm. it was, we had a combination of... People who are still doing it, but the vast majority, oh, I still do, you know, I make music, I've recorded an album in my bedroom, still like that. Because they've still got that urge. It just didn't, not all the cards fell in the, in the order they wanted them. What most surprised you in, the, uh, in your detective-like <laughs> perambulations around the country? What did you discover that what made you go, what? He's, he's a little-known guitarist in a little-known band, um, but Julian Hutton from The Shrubs trained to be an actor later. He played a, a TIE fighter pilot in one of the Star Wars no films. No way! Which is amazing. He says, never seen Star Wars, didn't know what one was. <laughs> Thought I could do it until I was 106 because I was in this costume. He goes, but they got a different, change the director. Don't know if I'm in the film, never seen it. And not only that, he was also Jeremy Irons' body double in, 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 in Watchmen. Which is I wanted him to be his arse double in Damage, you know, yes. when, we, when he plays the MP who's shagging his, uh, his brother's, uh, his son's girlfriend. It wasn't that, but still, you know, if there's a shot in Watchmen of man walking through door, yes. that's, that's, that's really? Julian from the shrubs. Amazing. So, and actually, if, you, if there was a track on C86 called I Was Julian Irons' Arse Double, <laughs> that, then you would believe yeah, it, wouldn't you? It's, yeah. it's, that would be totally fitting for the genre. The format is it follows the same track listing, doesn't it? So we begin with Primal Scream again. Uh, Velocity Girl in their black leather trues, spotty shirts and tambourines period. It's actually quite a touching chapter because the guys were basically left behind, isn't it? Yeah. After Bobby and the rest of them go off and do Loaded, it's tambourine operator. It's, it's, it's yeah, Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, Jukes, yeah. who who works as a security guard now and has done a bit of music in the, in the interim. But, you know, it was all... Bobby saying, yeah, we're a democracy, so this is a socialist band. And he's, well, there was, there was a three-tier pay structure, and I was on, they signed to the major, and I was still on exactly the same money. Which you might say is kind of fair, because he wasn't writing the songs, and he's, you know, he's, mm. he's playing a tambourine. But yeah, he's a, he was a great character, really, 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 you know, lovely Glaswegian guy who just played loads of records as we spoke. He goes, yeah. he'd, been to the, he'd been to the charity shop that morning, got these pictures. <laughs> We're having some Julie London. Hold on. Walk over to the... Having some Julie London now. And now we've got Mel Torme or whatever. It was fantastic. He was a lovely guy. Do you think people are happier when they've kind of been through it and it's gone and they can get on with other things and then can have another life? Or if they've sort of stuck with it and rode the train forever? Because we've all encountered rather deluded late career artists who are just thinking, like, <laughs> why are you still doing this? We kind of yeah. If they jack it in, it kind of retains that purity. Mm. Mm. So you've got you've got Paul Brotherson, the guitarist in the uh, in the Bodines. I found a 
an old enemy, old Melody Maker interview where, where Mick the singer says, God, we won't be doing this when we're 25. Can you imagine being 25 <laughs> and doing this? As Paul says, no, that was that was totally our way of thinking, and they, they've never reformed. But that was and they the did way of thinking, and that was the way no of thinking. No one thought they'd be doing no. it no. for twenty four or twenty five. Because you'd look at Jagger at the time. You think, well, I don't want to be that. Exactly. He's thirty five, and he's half dead. <laughs> yes. But but Paul then he went on and he's had a highly successful career as a as a, as a scientist. Um, was in the forefront of testing for COVID and, and manufacturing COVID stuff. So he's had this wonderful other life. And he's just got a band again together, just a little, you know, band so that he puts together. C eighty six one COVID nineteen nil. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found it really cheering actually to find out loads of these people who've kind of been on the because I was never really a full C eighty six guy, but people are on the kind of periphery of my island. I've often got really good and happy lives, like the Soup Dragons, mm-hmm. Sue Shield making his weird art and making his oh. on his own terms. Hi Fi Sean's new life as a disco guy. Mm-hmm. That's a real kind of. It's a kind of inspiring little tale. And Keith from A Witness is now tour managing literally everyone and seems to be the most trusted man in the music business. It's like, well done C86 people. They've really reinvented themselves, I think, because they thought, as Sean says, they weren't intending to, Mm. so it doesn't feel like anything's lost. Mm. Yeah, Mm. It doesn't feel like things ended prematurely. And it's just that some of them did go on to do other stuff, but we never intended to. I spoke to Alan from Big Flame. And he, he presented me with this typewritten, two-page typewritten manifesto. We will only do this. We will only put seven-inch singles out. We will only do this. We will only put seven seven-inch singles. We won't break up. We'll just end. Mm. And, that, <laughs> and he did. So he wants set 86. The seventh single comes out in the August, you know, three months later. And that's it. That's what you want. And, just walked, away, and just walked away from each other. And that was it. Mm. Ted, were you a C86 person or were you a militant raver? I was definitely... Uh, into rave music and clubbing and I was not interested at all (laughs) one happy customer on that on the divide at the enemy uh, uh, as the reader there was the hip hop wars and I was Mm. definitely on the hip hop side of the Paolo Hewitt uh, brigade on that at that time I'm afraid (laughs) but I do I do like all this I do like the stories and I'm going to read this book because it sounds well to be be fair I wasn't a C86 kid you know in yeah. 86 I was listening to Lights Rich Pageant I was listening to Queen Is Dead so I was kind of edging towards oh, that I listened to those two yeah. Yeah. so you know but, but the Bodines I could appreciate on Meow I love the Meow track but I wasn't yeah. I wasn't into the shrubs or Bogshed or anything <laughs> and so coming to this not as a dyed in the wall yeah. dust off my badges and pin them back on my, my shirt guy but it's it's about people's lives regardless of the yeah. music they made it's the choices they made with their lives that's what I love about it because actually as, as you know I was actually quite opposed to C86 so like for god's sake house music is being invented right exactly. now hip hop's everywhere and you want to make you want to stand there looking at your shoes while jangling away but then you read the book and like I just thought good on all of you Sean you I bet you had a box shed tattoo <laughs> um, I was close yeah I was actually did devour C86 I loved it I absolutely loved it and but did you, you know, have a breath on top <laughs> I had, and a berry I died you know dyed my trousers black and I dyed my shoes black you know just have that sort of look and for me I was you know a school kid discovering about all this new music and this that and the other there's a way that it is so jangly and non-threatening. It means it's really accessible for girls as well. There was a point where mm. you can get into guitar music and you can hear the references and then you can go and listen to the birds and then you can go and listen to the stones or whatever that they're referencing. And it's really accessible, unlike some rock music, which is, as you know, it's just sort of just too much of an edge to it or a masculine edge. So mm. I just thought this was absolutely fantastic. And, I, you know, it, it was a bit of a religion for me at the time. Because you had the shopper senses, just on the yeah. tape, shopper senses, meow, yeah, fuzzbox, exactly. we yeah, haven't yeah. mentioned. 
you know, there, there were plenty in the drummer, drummer in um, the pastels as well. Yeah, famous sometimes can be quite nice. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> certain things. Before we move on, we do have to talk a little bit about half my half biscuit. You were going to go finally, <laughs> finally. You were going to go for a bike ride with Nigel to John Peel's house on the Wirral, but it got rained off. Peely bike ride rained off is, of course, a bonfire <laughs> way to be done. Um, Next album. Yeah, he tells you of all the bands that you might think would carry on and write better songs, we are the last ones you'd stick a fiver on. And yet they are probably more successful than they've ever been. I mean, and better. And they sell out thousand-seater venues. It's mad, isn't it? The unintentional long game of mm. Nigel Blackwell is one of the success stories <laughs> of recent music times. Because at the time, I mean, he so he, so I was going up to, to meet him, and he says, oh, I've, I've ordered the, the three-CD box set, and it's come. I'm playing it for the first time. I love it. I love that yeah. first song. Because at the time, we were so away from anything. And I wasn't a punter by then. By then, I am writing songs and everything. I never took any notice. I didn't vow it. And, mm. and in fact, you know, they split up shortly after. They'd, they were the most successful one at the time because they'd already had a number one independent. They'd, they'd outsold the Smiths and New Order mm. in the independent charts the previous year. And he was just like a fanboy. He was yeah. just going, oh, that track's great. Oh, let me put that track on. And that track's great. And because he's he's been willfully removed himself from mm. any interviews that he doesn't want to do, puts albums out when he fancies, never does a tour, will just do sporadic gigs, a gig every six weeks mm. or so. He's played the long game and he's, he's self-sustaining cottage industries industry of himself and, and still putting out fantastic records. You know, he's still got plenty to say because he hasn't splurged it all on the first two albums and mm, yeah. got nothing left, you know. But we're going to finish with another flavour of the C86 years. This is one of my absolute favourite bands. You don't have to be Prince. If you want to dance, you just have to get down with the age <laughs> of chance. Here's a bit of Bible of the Beats, which is also not on C86. It's not on Spotify either. But thanks to Jeff from Age of Chance for letting us have it and the flavour of 1986. another tune wheeled in by one of our guests Ted Kessler what have you bought him for us today and why God I've almost forgotten what it was yeah it's Kismet by uh, Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band I actually went for Broken Beauty but Andrew told me I couldn't have that one because that's my favourite track oh. on the album we've already played it because you've already played it but yeah. Kismet I think the whole of that album Dear Scott by Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band is so far ahead of anything else I've listened to this year that um, I can just pick any track from mm-hmm. it and say this is my track of the year because I think he's he's hitting in his 60th year the finest songwriting uh, of his career he really has he's sort of cleaned himself up and has developed a way of describing the world that he inhabits in Kensington in Liverpool that um is a strata of society that isn't summed up anywhere else by any other songwriter. When you wait different stations Locked in As the time goes by I'm working up without platforms In the mood of the morning 
finally, regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite song of all time and add it to our rolling playlist. They hate doing it. We love making them do it. <laughs> Nigel, what have you chosen? I've chosen Professor Longhair mm-hmm. and a song called Tipitina, a, t- a song so good they named a New Orleans club after it. All right. Specifically, it's the 1974 version um, from the album Rock and Roll Gumbo. He recorded for 20 years, various, various points. He fell out of favour. He was... Um, sweeping the floor in a record shop when he got rediscovered and so he, for the last six, seven years of his life he was rebooted became mates with McCartney and everything and he was but amazing piano player plays piano like you've never heard anyone play before and this this song used to be used to be oh god sounds like an absolute knobhead eh? but um, used to be uh, the opening track to my student radio show as well, well. there we go, there we go. Um, but it's, it's, it's just really lolloping and just unlike anything I'd ever heard and just kind of knocked me sideways still does what's your student radio show called Street Tassel <laughs> very good that's, that's good but if only been. I knew you back in 1988 <laughs> then, um, right, then it wasn't no, no. Well, well we'll have Professor Longhair's Tipitina Ted Kessler what have you chosen for the greatest record of all time uh, Family Affair by Sly and the Family Stone not a controversial choice I don't feel I. you asked me on the train I'd forgotten how to do this so I got, the, got your text what's your favourite song and immediately I thought of that song so it had to be because and it kind of relates to the book I think as well because when I left home I left home at 16 going on 17 I moved to London. My family moved to America, <clears throat> and I was alone in this basement in Hammersmith. And I had that album by Sly and the Family Stone, and Family Fair was the the, the song that I transfixed on, and it really um, just that it sort of guided me through that period of my life. So I'm always taken back to that to being 17 years old in London and free. And also quite a good fit with the Fell from the Sun tunes. Well, we're going to stick up. Yeah, it's yeah. true, yeah. So we're going to put these all on our rolling playlist. The link is in the show notes. And it's on Tidal 2 as well. We've updated Tidal. Yes. <laughs> and with that, we're at the end of the podcast. And it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we pick up our 12-string, put on our desert boots and neck half a bottle of Buckfast before going to sit somewhere and look moody? Ted, what's your closing time chatter? Because I'm totally self-obsessed and... Um, can only see as far as my own <laughs> immediate plans. I've been thinking about music books quite a lot recently, and how many? <laughs> what a good job that is! Thank and, God. And there are so many of them, and I get sent so many, and quite a lot of them look like music books I'd like to read. Mm. Will I get around to reading them? I don't know, and I worry about whether we've reached a tipping point in music books, and whether we have just filled in that vacuum that say Q once. For real music heads, yeah, where the just, music press used to be. Mm. Well, we know that we know there were thirty thousand, forty thousand people who bought uh, contemporary music magazines every every yeah. month. We knew yeah, that yeah. at the end, they've gone. So the publishing industry has gone right. Well, these people are there to buy music books, and um, perhaps they are doing it. And I hope they're doing it because you know I'm constantly pitching ideas and being told to pitch more ideas. But at some point, I just feel there's going to be too many in some of these books. Maybe they could be magazine articles, and perhaps someone should publish that a magazine. Say, perhaps you could like take these books and slice them down, yeah. and like, maybe put them out monthly and Re- charge a fiver for it. Yeah, I, I mean, not Nigel's book and not my book, but other, <laughs> other books could definitely go into that that sphere. Mm-hmm. Nigel, how about you? I'm going to look quite insular, slightly beyond myself, but I'm um, just um, last weekend on Sunday, um, my brother-in-law's brother-in-law's band played the Dune, the Rabbit Hole Festival um, up near Perth. And they supported Teenage Fan Club, which was... Uh, oh. And you think, OK, well, that's great. But his band, air quotes again, has an average age of 75. <laughs> um, and they, they took a slimmed-down <laughs> version of them up, up there. The Morrison Orpheus male voice choir. Oh. 
And so they were supporting Teenage Fan Club. They were also supporting Yes Sir I Can Boogie Hitmakers Baccarat as no well, which probably sent the 75-year-old tickers <laughs> going, well, going a little Baccarat bit. Baccarat on that young themselves. Actually, you know, it's probably contemporaries, yeah. yeah. Um, and just fantastic. And so it's, it, it's about how festivals, you know... We, Back in the 80s, back in 1986, everyone was trying to be cool as anything. Mm. Whereas now, you know, a certain type of festival might still try and be cool, but largely that opening up of, of music, you know, the fact that some old guys can take to the stage at two in the afternoon in the middle of nowhere, approaching the highlands of Scotland, and can, they had two two standing encores. You know, it just would be one of the highlights of their year, of their lives, and they've been singing together for 40, 50 years, a lot of them, you know? Amazing. So that was a, a, a touching moment for me. Andrew, what's your closing time, Chatter? Well, sadly, it's one of them. It is the... We've got to mark the death of Paul Ryder of Happy Mondays. Um, I was really surprised, because I know Happy Mondays have always sort of, shall we say, uh, scared at the edge of their health. But um, you sort of always expected all of them would kind of last forever. And um, mm. Paul, bass player, massive part of the, you know the entire identity of mm. the band, mm. played bass unlike other people um, in a way that was both kind of like naive musicianship, but mm. also very clever musicianship, inspired by all the things that most rock bands are not inspired yeah. by. From the kind of really messy, early Happy Mondays records all the way through to Pills and Thrills, it was bass music, and he was the bass, and it's it's just incredibly sad. And I know the Ryder family is quite a complicated one, but I just thought we should we should mention it mm. because without and I know the Mondays are enormously important. You changed your life, didn't they? Totally changed my life. Yeah, and yeah. he held that band together really musically. Yeah, with, it was. It was kind of lots of splashes of colour and stuff, but he was the one bit that sort of bound it all together. Mm. Yeah, and also being Sean's brother, that sort of puts a, a yeah. thing in there, mm. in, the, in you know, in who's what, who's the authority, who's in charge, what, you know. So just immensely sad, and I wanted to register yeah. that. Yeah, Sean, yeah. cheer us up. What's yours? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is cheery, and, I, and it's not necessarily a surprise. It's the figures are a surprise. Is that more teenagers are turning away from traditional media outlets like newspapers and getting news, actual news, from TikTok and Instagram? Right. How do we know this? We know this because it's an Ofcom. Uh, survey, so it actually is a it proper is. survey. It's not just a survey that yeah, you know, like the pants a, company a did. Pub, yeah. yeah, exactly. But the number of people consuming news content on TikTok was eight hundred thousand two years ago. It's now three point nine million. Okay, that's quite a big figure. Really, you think that's how you're getting your news, and how is the news then presented if it's on TikTok? Instagram is bigger though. Twenty nine percent of teens apparently get their news. From Instagram, I would like to know what, what news could. Be. What, I want to know <laughs> legs are near beaches, avocados are on salads, <laughs> and the world's blowing up. But um, yeah, yeah, it is peculiar, but it still is a thing. This, you know, the, this is this is the new newspaper. Instagram, yeah, Facebook. Yeah. I just think well, they're it's all just like, channels, aren't they? They're, they're, they're just ways to get so. things out. Yeah, but I mean, it does make one worry. There's a great bit in Ted's book, I believe it's on the first page, <laughs> where the publishers of Q decide the way to deal with the internet. The threat of the internet is to sack the website anytime. <laughs> yeah. So that's what old publishing is doing for you. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Um, thanks so much to Ted Kessler for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love being here. And thank you to Nigel Tassel for his Culture Bunker debut. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Been a pleasure having you here. Paper Cuts and Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids are both out now. Read them, buy them at the same time and save on the postage. <laughs> Remember, listeners, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist, or most of them anyway. The link's at the top of the show notes. From me, from Sean, from producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofrinaevich and Jade Bailey, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.
The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison and Sean Pandon. The producers were Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>